Hello and welcome to That's Helpful with me, Ed Stott. As you know, we're all about science-backed self-help here, building our best lives one episode at a time. For the next month, I've got something a little special planned for you. It's called Insiders. Each week, we'll hear from an expert who's either dug deep into or previously worked in the industries whose business is our minds and bodies. We'll explore the tricks employed by each of these industries that are cashing in on manipulating our physical and mental health to level up our knowledge and polish up our BS detectors to protect ourselves, our families and our wallets. Today, we are starting off with a bang, with Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and New York Times best-selling author, Michael Moss. He spent over 10 years examining how food giants like Coca-Cola, Kraft and Nestle manipulate and market our food to make it addictive. We're taking a closer look at this industry to understand what's happening to our food before it gets to us and how it's changing pretty much everything in and around us. This episode and series is made possible by the support of Sleeping Dog. If you need a new mattress or bed, you can get the absolute best quality for comfort and your back while saving thousands. It's called the Sleeping Dog. Ask your friends about it. You buy it online, it's delivered to your door. It comes with a fully adjustable comfort system that allows you to tweak the firmness independently for you and your partner, all in your own home. And while we're talking Sleeping Dog, check out their bed too. It's built with 50 kilos of structural grade S235 steel. That's a steel beam under each individual sleeper to prevent back damaging mattress sag. Sleeping Duck sets a new standard for sleep and being manufacturer direct, it's incredible value. For your risk-free 100 night trial, visit sleepingduck.com. Sleeping Duck, one giant leap for your sleep. So today, it's no secret that the way we eat has changed significantly since our parents' generation. The big difference between now and then is what's happening to our food before it gets to our plate. The explosion of processed foods has changed not just the way our plates or takeout containers look, but our minds and bodies too. Michael Moss is the author of Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us and Hooked, How We Became Addicted to Processed Food. Michael, why did you start to investigate the food industry? Like you are a heavy hitting journalist and you, you know, before this, you were in Libya investigating, you know, how uh, the war was going on in Afghanistan. Like you were in the midst of it, you know, talking to people who were creating IEDs, like huge, huge news, but seems worlds away from this. How did you get into this? You know, you can kind of blame the FBI for that because you're right. I, I was I was in Algeria, Algeria, like, sorry, you know, tormenting the Pentagon for the way its war on terrorism is going on, and these two FBI agents show up at the New York Times headquarters in Manhattan looking for me, and they tell my editors that somehow I've managed to land on an Al Qaeda hit list, which was probably just the Algerian government trying to get rid of me. But you know, we couldn't take the chance, so my editors ordered me home. And my editor at the Times is going, you know, Michael, why don't we like try something a little safer to do? And she had spotted this outbreak of salmonella and peanuts being manufactured here in the United States. They were making people sick all over the country. And I, and I went down and took a look. And I have to say, and it was like going from one war to an even bigger war, because that opened up this whole world of the trillion dollar processed food industry and, and these these hidden huge health costs to to our dependency on their you know convenience foods it, it is wild and i really want to unpack some of the things that are actually going on in this industry and have been for you know quite some time but to give us an idea of what's at stake here and the motivation for these companies tell me just how much is this industry worth um, the industry is sort of valued at one trillion dollars roundly, if you include kind of a lot of the fast food convenient restaurants that are using the same kind of food products that they're using in their in their grocery stores. A trillion trillion dollars, tens of millions of dollars of tens of millions of workers, which is a great sort of lobbying point when they go to the White House or Congress to get their way over over regulators. 
And, you know, at last count, you know, they have the hearts and minds of 60, 70% of Americans and a good chunk of the rest of the world um, committed to eating their products. It is absolutely phenomenal. And when you read the book, I mean, the scales fall from your eyes. But can you tell me, how has our relationship with food changed from the 1950s onwards? And how have the food industry capitalized on this? You know, what changed in terms of like uh, social movements that kind of supercharged the power of these industries? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, brace yourself for this one, because one of the catalysts was women increasingly working outside of the home and men not picking up the slack. And when that happened after World War II into the 60s, 70s, the food companies saw this huge opportunity. And that's where they coined the term convenience foods. And basically, they came to us and said, no problem, go work, we'll take care of dinner. And that's when they began engineering these products. And you called them food in the introduction. But I have to tell you, Ed, you you pull these things apart and we're looking at cardboard with salt, sugar, fat sprinkled on top. I mean, this is it's really difficult to call some of these products real food like you might make in your own kitchen. But that's when they that's when they began engineering these products, you know, to maximize the allure, to maximize their cheapness, their convenience, their over the top yumminess. And a lot of these foods, these companies that create these foods now, they are hitting the industry from both sides, right? Like they're creating the food that is junk food, but they're also creating the food that is diet food or food that's designed to help with weight loss. I'm thinking of Nestle in particular. Yeah, Nestle and Heinz with with the Weight Watchers. So, you know, I, you know, first book came out and I, you know, I really did try and I would usually say something I look. I really don't see this as this evil empire that intentionally set out to like kill half a million Americans every year with uh, obesity and type two diabetes. But 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 then sort of I came across this phenom that not only they're doing that, but they've turned around and in order to shift the blame from them to us, they began buying up the world's biggest diet programs, Weight Watchers and and South Beach Diet and Slim Fast and began creating these diet versions of their products and putting them in the grocery store shelf next to one of those. So you mentioned Nestle. They own the Hot Pocket and then they own the Lean Pocket right next to it. And, you know, we're supposed to stand there in the store and exercise some, you know, huge amount of willpower to decide that, this week, I'm going to have the lean pocket. I will, I will, when really the difference between the two products, you know, isn't, isn't, but, you know, isn't, isn't that great. But the real serious point here is that this is not our fault. For everything the industry wants us to think it's our fault, they're engineering these products in a way that destroys free will. And if you look at a person who's heavier than they want to be, you know, you just, which I used to do, I confess, I used to think, God, just like, you know, exercise a little self-control. It is not about that. These things induce cravings in your head that shut down the thinking part of the brain and you are helpless against them. And the one that was absolutely wild to me that I heard you talk about before is that um, Nestle develop all of this junk food, but they also develop uh, like a shake or a drink that you're meant to have post-bariatric surgery. So post-lap band surgery, that's like fed to you in hospitals. Get them fat on Hot Pockets and then get them thinking they can get thin on these bariatric sort of liquid shakes, which is, you, you know, which is that surgery that shrinks the stomach and parts of the intestine, um, you know, in order, you know, in, in, in a desperate attempt on your part to sort of control your your overconsumption of these products. Because again, they're engineered to get us to not just like them, but to want more and more. And that's the problem. 
So that's what I want to get into. I want to figure out what they are doing to these foods to make them so addictive. So just how much work is going into these foods? Like to give us an idea of how much engineering is in there. How many people are there working on this and how many different jobs rely on engineering these foods before they get to our plate? Yeah, well, let's start with the attitudes, right? Yeah. And you have to you have to love the language that they use. That, you know, when they're talking to each other about maximizing um, the allure of their products. So this thing they call the bliss point, perfect amount of sweetness in products. I, I got to spend time with a legend in the industry. He was trained in in high math and then um, experimental psychology at Harvard, and he he has invented many of the big icons in the grocery store. And he walked me through his recent creation of a new flavor for Dr. Pepper, the soda, in which he started with no less than 60 versions of sweetness, each one just slightly different than the next one, subjected those to some 3,000 consumer taste tests around the country, and then took the data through in his computer, did his high math regression analysis thing, and you know, out comes these bell-shaped curves that kids get you know, graded on at school, but at the top of the curve is not the dreaded middle C, it's the perfect amount of sweetness, not too little, not too much. And it was Howard who then convinced or helped convince the industry to not just engineer bliss points for things we know should be sweet, soda, ice cream, cookies. These companies marched around the grocery store adding sugar to products that weren't ever sweet before, engineering a bliss point for bread, for yogurts, which some brands came to have the equivalent of, of sugar as ice cream per serving to spaghetti sauce, where some brands had the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies in a tiny half cup serving. And what this did arguably was convinced us to expect sweetness in everything we eat. So when you drag ourselves over to that tiny part of the grocery store where every nutritionist says we should be spending more time and eating more, the produce aisle, right? And eat something like, Brussels sprouts that'll deliver not sweetness but a little bitter note or sour. The brain, right, rebels. And boy, if you have a couple kids, you know, with you, they're going to drag you back to the rest of the store for that sweetness. So that was a sweet thing. Um, salt they call the flavor burst because it's typically on the surface, especially with snack food. It's the first thing that touches the taste bud when you put it in its mouth. And that taste bud then sends a signal to the reward center of the brain, just like sugar, that basically says, wow, Michael, I love that. Let's eat more of it. And then the third, you know, in their unholy trinity, of course, is oil, which delivers what they call the mouthfeel. It's that... It's that sensation of biting into like a toasted cheese sandwich. You're a fat you guy, can I can tell. tell. <laughs> I'm a fat and a salt guy more than yeah. sugar because my brain, just like saying those words, is like, going, let's hurry up so I can go get one of those. But um, so, so those are the, but it's, but it's more than kind of just those three ingredients, right? They figured out that noise is a big factor. <clears throat> um, Frito-Lay had this machine that mimicked the jaw and they would put potato chips in there to get the perfect amount of noise in a chip when you chew on it, knowing that the noisier it is, the more you'll, you'll eat. Color is, you know, there's some science showing that we're attracted to bright colors and that's why you walk in the grocery store and there's this, you know, there's this day glow kind of color atmosphere going, going on in that. And then they have these data analysts who are constantly kind of watching and scrubbing the data on what we're what we're what we're looking at? And there was this amazing story back in the back in the eighties, Frito Lay again, um, the chip snacks manufacturer. You know, it had marketing that tailed off as people got older because they were making stuff that they thought only kids really like. And there was a guy named Dwight Risky who was working for them, and one day he just he looks at the data and he goes, we're looking at this all wrong. And he and he converts it to what they call cohort data, where they can follow people as they age decade by decade. And it totally blew his mind because what he discovered was that people didn't stop eating these snack foods as they grew older. If anything, they began eating more because of this other 
huge societal change that was going on, which is that we were all getting stressed out. We were working longer hours in the office. We were skipping family dinners. We were snacking throughout the day. And baby boomers, when when Frito-Lay realized that, became again a, you know a target of their marketing and a huge part of a huge part of their operation. So you've got like psychologists, data analysts, um, chemists, right, manipulating the chemical components of these of these products and on and on and on all working for these companies it's huge we don't stand a chance so tell me well, go on okay well we'll get to that we'll, we'll get to that we'll, we'll get, get to, to that, that. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> it's not it's not all dark and gloomy yeah okay good we'll get to that that's some good sizzle there michael thank you um, <laughs> so when we're thinking about all these different things that go into creating the food uh, and how that changes the way these foods interact with our brain tell me about when you went to Kellogg's and they made you all of this food without the salt, sugar, and fat. Okay, I mean, this was a this was a huge moment of surprise for me, and I'll tell you one other little surprise. Yeah. So on a personal level, what really blew my mind was discovering that these executives at these companies who make these products that the whole world is now hooked on don't touch their own products, either because they don't have to, because they're making so much money. They have personal chefs and nutrition experts and personal trainers or their spouses don't have to work outside of the house, right? Or because they know the power of these products to cause you to lose control. I mean, these people, you know, I had a conversation with the former top lawyer at Philip Morris, the former largest tobacco company in North America, if not the world. For the longest time, Philip Morris was also the single biggest manufacturer of processed food. Who knew? But they owned Kraft, Nabisco, which makes Oreos, and some of these other companies. And he goes, he goes, you know, Michael, I was one of those people who could smoke one cigarette a day, put the pack away, never think about it again, maybe the next day when I'm in a business meeting. But I could not go near a bag of our Oreo cookies, right? <laughs> for fear of losing control and eating half the bag in one sitting. I mean, the irony of, you know, these merchants of death with, you know, tobacco being scared of the power of these food products to, to, to cause us to lose control is just like, it's, it's too rich, but it's, but it's also really informing. So, so a personal level. So on a bigger level, though, you know, I initially thought these were big, powerful companies that, you know, were all in control. So salt at one point became this public enemy number one. When we, you know, saw the connection between eating too much sodium and high blood pressure, heart disease. So I went to the companies and I said, look, guys, we know that 75 percent of the salt we consume comes from you, your products, not from the salt shaker on the table, why don't you just like cut back and help everybody out? And several of the companies said, yeah, we'll talk to you about that. But Kellogg said, we're not just going to talk to you about that, Michael. Come on in. We're going to show you. And so I went to Detroit, got in the car, drove to Battle Creek, Michigan, the birthplace of American style breakfast cereals, um, and sat down. And had, Ed, the most god-awful meal of my life because they had made for me special versions of some of their biggest sellers using no salt at all, thinking, we're going to show this guy why salt is so important to us, right? So we started with the Cheez-Its. Do you know those? Normally, I could eat those day in and day out, right? But these didn't have any salt. We couldn't swallow them. They stuck to the roof of our mouth because salt provides the industry with texture and solubility. We moved on to the frozen waffles without any salt in this version, put them in the toaster, and they came out tasting and looking like straw because salt adds color and flavor to an otherwise kind of flavorless product. And then the most beautiful thing were the cornflakes. I didn't even know cornflakes had salt in them, but boy, do they. But these saltless cornflakes, we put them in the bowl, put some milk, um, took a bite. And the chief spokeswoman for the company is sitting next to me. And she, she, she swallows and she 
gets this look of horror on her face, and she blurts out the word metal, M-E-T-A-L, I taste metal. And I'm thinking, yeah, I taste that. I thought one of my fillings had come out and was like sloshing around <laughs> one of my metal fillings. Right? And and then the chief, the chief technical officer, right? He's the guy in charge of like all things scientific at the company. He kind of starts chuckling and he goes, not everybody will you know, we'll, we'll taste that metallic taste. But one of the beautiful things about sulfur is it will mask, um, quote unquote, cover up some of the off notes, meaning bad tastes that are inherent to many processed foods. In the case of cereal, you know, they were adding so many vitamins and minerals to make the stuff seem healthy and good for you that that metallic taste was was coming through. But then I spent time with another company, Campbell Soup. Um, and they explained to me that they have they have one of the biggest challenges in the, the whole industry because when meat gets rewarmed, the fat in the meat oxidizes and gives off what professional taster flavorists describe as the taste of wet dog hair. Oh, no. And so, can you guess what the solution is to wet dog hair taste? In a can of vegetable beef soup. Of course, it's more salt, right? But that's when I realized that this industry that I used to kind of think is all-powerful, I mean, I almost started feeling sorry for it because they're more hooked than we are in using, you know, way too much of just those three ingredients, not for taste, but for their own kind of industrial technical reasons. Um, and it's a really, you know, it was a really important lesson to me in sort of thinking about going forward. I mean, to what extent can we even like think of these these companies as playing a meaningful role in any effort to, on our part, to sort of change our eating habits? It's it's grim for, for, for them. And <laughs> but But like I say, I was just like struck by them, them being more hooked than we are. That thing about the salt just covering up all flavors is just absolutely that my uh, for me that was like what I could not believe it changes the way you think about everything. So tell me the other thing that really um kind of shed some light on what's going on with these industries is the the language that some of these companies use like in particular Coke have a very interesting phrase that they use to refer to their most loyal customers, don't they? Well, they call them heavy users, and it's not just right heavy users, as in I don't know, like. Well, there's only one like, other place where that phrase is used, right? And that's drug addiction. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right, right, right. Which, which, speaking of which, I mean, that sort of led me to 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 do the next, you know, research for the the most recent book that yeah. came out asking this question: Is this is this um, <clears throat> should we be looking at these products, you know, as being addictive, like? tobacco and alcohol and even even some drugs but but yeah you're absolutely the the language right there's this there's this other term that they use called sensory specific satiety which means that's kind of an instinct of ours that gets us to suddenly feel full and bored eating one too much of one thing yeah and you can kind of imagine you know being in a hunter-gatherer society in the plains of africa and and you're eating, you know, something off this great little bush here, and then your brain goes, okay, but we really could use some vitamin D or some other nutrient. Let's move on to the next bush. And so you're going to get sick of that one bush, right? So industry knows that. And so in crafting these very precise formulas for their products, and Coke does this too, and so does Pepsi, they engineer it in a way that no one flavor will rise above the others. It's a kind of a perfect, it's, it's almost ironically, it's almost like a blandness to the food um, to keep up us from triggering that sensory specific satiety signal that'll you know, make us want to stop eating that and move on to something else. 
That is fascinating. I, I will talk about this later, but it strikes me that this whole industry relies on keeping us distracted. You know, like they rely on convenience food. They want us to be doing other things while we're eating. They want us to not be recognizing any of these flavors. So like I'm a big advocate for intuitive eating and actually taking the time and be more mindful and, you know, mm. and and actually thinking about what you're eating. But this whole industry is just trying to push us off that balance, right? Yeah, they call it impulse buying. I mean, that's why you walk in the you know walk in the grocery store and there's this like, you know, Muzak playing kind of puts you in this la la land kind of atmosphere. I mean, that's designed to get you to not think about yourself and the consequences of of what you're buying. And then strategically in the grocery store, you know, it's laid out and designed in a way to get you to buy impulsively. And of course, well, it within so. The industry has done these studies where they put this device on shoppers' heads that measures their eye movements. <clears throat> and so they know that when we walk into, say, the cereal aisle, our attention will immediately go to the center part of the aisle at eye level. And that's where they put the most enticing, sugary-laden cereal. So if you want, you know, foods that are on your intuitive eating list, like plain oatmeal or even plain Cheerios, they're going to be like down at the bottom or, or up high where you can't even get it. And of course, the most dangerous part of the store for us is the checkout aisle, because at that point, our resistance is down, we're hungry, our shopping list has like disappeared someplace. And, you know, that's why the soda companies began building these soda machines, you know, cases right there in the checkout lane next to the cigarettes and the candy, knowing that we're, 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 we're most vulnerable and susceptible to their, to their, to their product. And it's not just adults who are um, really uh, copying this, is it? Children are a particular focus and young people are a particular focus for these companies. Why is that? Because mm, the power of memory, it's one of the hugest tools besides sultry fat and noise and color and all of that stuff, memory, right? So both soda companies have worked really hard to get pouring rights in ball stadiums, baseball, football, what have you, because they know that when a kid is with their parents having the most joyous time of their life, and if they can get a soda into that kid's hands at the time, that will forevermore... Um, live in their head and be associated with that emotion and that joy. 40 years later, they could be having a stressful moment and they're going to think of that soda as, as, a, as a comforting thing, a way to sort of ease that stress. I had the same experience. You know, Kellogg's again, I did a separate trip looking at something else and went to, to one of their research and development factories. I was, yeah, looking at something else, but in the far corner of the factory floor, they were experimenting with a Pop-Tart and it had messed up on the assembly line and they were dumping vast amounts of the dough into this bin and the aroma wafted over the floor, hit my brain. I hadn't had a Pop-Tart since I was a latchkey kid in elementary school when I would come home and let myself in and have a strawberry Pop-Tart. Oh my God, I instantly was swept back to that moment because the Pop-Tart had never left my head. It was in there as a memory. And so knowing that, psychologists call this, call this calls what I'm going to say next, cues, right? It's things that can trigger your memories. Well, the food industry calls this marketing, mm. advertising, all of that stuff and the billions and billions of dollars they spend on advertising is designed to trigger the memories that they've literally put into our heads. And uh, this one product that so many people will remember, Lunchables, is a brilliant oh. example of how successful this marketing can be, right? Yeah, and, and another reason to sort of think of these products not as being food. So when, so Kraft had a problem. Mm -hmm. um, they had too much processed cheese, too much processed ham. They were looking for like a new way to, to kind of like present that. <clears throat> and, you know, and I should also say that the way I view a lot of these products in this industry is, 
it's not like they invent new stuff. They what they tend to do is like steal stuff from us. I mean, I should I should say this is nothing wrong with salt sugar fat in the in, in the hands of a great cook, right? Yeah. It's only in their hands. They they take this stuff and sort of corrupt it. Well, so you know, think of Japan with the bento box, right? This little container neatly partitioned with these delicious, wonderful, homemade broths and food items in there that you can you can kind of choose and play with a little bit. Well, that was one of the inspirations for the, for the Lunchables, right? But except they're using, in the initial version, crackers and processed cheese and ham and and then they came up with this pizza lunchables, which was kind of like cold pizza pizza crust with yeah, things you could that. add on. And and when the inventors at at at, at Kraft sort of presented this to parents of kids as being something maybe their kids might like, the parents go, "Are you out of your mind? There's no way like Billy and Susie are going to eat that." Billy and Susie loved it. I mean, they went crazy for lunchables, and the company really quickly figured out because it's not about the food it's about kind of the emotion and then in the case of kids it was like this emotional badge power when they walked in the in the in the lunchroom with this package of a lunchables you know colored in like yellow school bus and the initial ones were like wrapped like a gift because they were kind of they kind of were like a gift from your from your parents they were, you know, they were the cat's meow of the whole lunchroom. And that's when that's when Kraft came out with this slogan that turned Lunchables into a billion dollar year product. And it, it directed at kids and it, it it said, you know, all day you have to do what they say. But lunchtime is all yours. I remember no. that, though. I, I was never allowed them, but I was always like, damn, like, that's the thing to have, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, big time. Um, the other one that was really interesting that you speak about is the um, Kellogg's Rice Krispie Treat cereals. This one was interesting. Tell me about that. So, right. So they have these chemists working for them trying to mimic the flavors in food that you and I make. Yeah. And, you know, one of those things kind of being Rice Krispie treats, right? So somebody got this bright idea of, of making a cereal <clears throat> that mimics the flavor of Rice Krispie treats. And at some point, I think they put in real marshmallow but that caused the cereal to be soggy. And and sogginess is like the death of breakfast cereal. You want it to kind of be crunchy. But it was kind of at that point that they realized they didn't really have to put real marshmallow into the cereal. They just had to put something that would have close to the illusion of real marshmallow. And they... They call that permission, as in us giving them permission to trick us into thinking we're getting the real thing. And that kind of level can change from product to product and time to time. But that's that's kind of what they're looking for when they when they do invent these kind of new versions of their of their product is where's the permission line? Where where will people gladly, you know, be fooled by by this mimicking on our part? So, obviously, uh, we know this is going on. What is the solution, both personally and on a broader scale? How can we ourselves work to protect ourselves against this huge industry that has clearly has so much power in, at its disposal? Yeah, so, you know, Salt Sugar Fat opens with this secret meeting of, of the heads of the biggest companies who get together privately to talk about their growing culpability for obesity and type 2 diabetes. And, and, and you know, and it's... And, and this and, was in and, 1999, you know, right? So this was early back on. Back in 1999. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. think about all the lives you could have saved, you know, since then. And obesity was still just kind of growing at that, that point and becoming a problem. So one, you know, one kind of exercise I've thought about 
is to go back to that meeting and ask because at the at the end of the meeting they go ah screw it you know we're just going to double down and let people exercise more if they want to right <clears throat> so but one of the exercises one could do is go back to the meeting and go okay what who could we put in that room that might actually help persuade them to do the right thing and i happen to believe it's not a government official i mean Hats off to Michelle Obama for making like childhood obesity sort of a national conversation. But but even she couldn't convince her husband, you know, who was fighting a huge kind of fiscal crisis at the time to do anything that would jeopardize the tens of millions of jobs that these companies have. So I'm thinking it might be a lawyer because one of the one of the things that brought the tobacco industry to its knees were lawyers, well, states attorneys general, lawyers working for states that went after tobacco, not because smoking was bad for you, but because they were having to pay the states these huge medical bills for people who got sick from smoking. So there are, in fact, attorneys looking at the possibility of doing the same thing with the entire processed food industry, holding them financially accountable for the hidden costs. Because I've seen some research showing that we're, we're getting close to, to basically a $1 to $1 ratio. Every dollar we spend on these processed food products, we're having to spend a dollar on big pharma, healthcare, remediation wow. to deal with the trouble that the products cause. So that's maybe somebody in, in the room. Maybe we could have some of the growing number of people who are quitting the industry and taking their expertise to work on behalf of small startup good food companies. Maybe they could be there to explain to the CEOs that you really can change. You can do it. But I think the other big factor has to be, you know, someone from the investment community, because one of the big problems for the industry, even wanting to do the right thing, they're under so much pressure from Wall Street to keep the stock price up that they don't have time. And it takes time to invent a new, to re-engineer, reformulate their products. And then it takes time to kind of coax people back into kind of accepting a product that might have less sugar or less fat or, you know, some added good things or to even pay a little bit more, a little bit more money. So, so I think that institutionally, globally, that's kind of how you might want to think about it. Personally, I really love thinking about these products as, in fact, being trouble for us like other addictive things. And when you when you think about addiction, it's it's good to know that it happens on a spectrum. These products don't affect everybody in the same way. There are people who can smoke one cigarette a day, just like there are people who can have one drink a day and not be addicted to it, right? But there are people at one end of the spectrum who can't get near a bag of Oreo cookies without losing control. For them, I think the solution is abstention, like it is with, with the drug addiction. Don't go near it. Don't let it in your house. You're not going to be able to control it. Then there are people kind of in the middle of the spectrum who's, who's kind of like trouble with these products is like that 3 p.m. craving mm. you get for like a cookie or whatever, right? And the lesson from the drug industry, or sorry, from drug addiction is, is that the craving caused by these products is so strong and overwhelmingly causing you to act impulsively and compulsively that no matter what your strategy might be, whether it's to take a walk around the block or call a friend or have a handful of nuts that might tide you over for dinner, you need to be executing that, that strategy very carefully before the craving comes on. So at 2.45, to ward off that 3 p.m. that 3 p.m. craving. And then for the rest of us, you know, whose trouble with these, these modern processed food products is more along the lines of just kind of missing the love and the beauty of a home-cooked meal with family and friends. I mean, I think the solution there is to turn fast food into slower food. And to the extent that you can, you know, find ways to cook your own food from scratch. And depending on the audience, this is, you know, this is usually where I go into my 90-second spaghetti sauce recipe, right? Because <laughs> love, home love. cooking... Home cooking doesn't have to wipe out your day, right? And I, it's literally 96. And granted, you know, when it simmers on the stove a while, my family's more apt to eat it. But, but the, you know, but the labor part of it is 90 seconds. And you can have a delicious, 
less expensive, you know, spaghetti sauce. Um, so, and and in the pro, there's something as you know, Ed, there's something magical about cooking. It slows you down. It causes you to become mindful, as you say. It causes your your gut and your brain to kind of get ready for what's coming in. It's the antithesis of these processed foods that are all about speed, just like the most powerful drugs of abuse are all about all about speed. So those are kind of three areas on that trouble spectrum that I that I think you know maybe we could look to for for some help and guidance in, in regaining control over our, our eating habits. Yeah, I definitely think that idea of slowing the process down is incredibly helpful. And there are ways to do that, you know, regardless of how much time you have. And when it comes to uh, the marketing of these things and the slowing down the process and kind of having autonomy over what we eat, it's one thing when we're adults, but it's very hard to convince children that they don't want the lunch balls. Have you found anything that works when it comes to helping our kids navigate some of these like more fun foods with nutritious yeah. and, and where that balance lies? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we raised two boys. I mean, when they were younger, they were like little walking bliss points for sugar, yeah. right? You know, as were their friends. I mean, the idea of saying no, I mean, if you said no to them, they would just like run out the house to their friend's house and, and yeah. pick out all they wanted to, right? You couldn't say no. So one strategy we had was to, instead of saying no, instead of preaching, was to just kind of have this conversation with them about food and even younger kids in elementary school kind of get the idea that there are these big companies out there wanting to tell them what they should like in the mm-hmm. world right and they being big little kids have the opportunity to decide for themselves what they value in food and that conversation kind of like talking about food as politics is something kids are really really receptive to. And then the other, well, there are two other things. The, the One other thing then is instead of kind of worrying too much about the junk, we kind of worked on enticing them to the good side, right? And, you know, and, and that kind of involved new habit forming, right? And my wife liked to say that if we just get them to taste broccoli 19 times, right, they'll finally like it. And there is, in fact, a real number out there in research, and it's something like that. But it worked with our kids. Oh, my God. Both are – I mean, my youngest is 18. My oldest is 22 now. I see them at their places or they come home. They're still eating plain steamed broccoli for dinner several times a week, right? right? So, so the, that really does – it really does work. But here's the, here's the other really cool thing that I think we could think about because one of the things the industry has stolen from us is the language – of food. That's kind of what all their marketing is about, the storytelling with the cartoons and all of that. I think we could take back control over the language of food and start, you know, telling the stories about grandma's spaghetti sauce or something, right? Or associating your home-cooked meals with a really joyous event. And I kind of got this idea because in the Obama White House, Sam Cass was the chef, a really great guy, a really good chef and thinker about food, had had made this ordinary, he would say, kind of spaghetti for the president. But it just so happened that that night, the president had like a debate. I guess it was a re-election campaign. I'm not sure. But he did really, really well. It was a great night. And for every, and the president came to him and said, Sam, what was that? What was that dinner you made? And that's when they decided that wasn't just like spaghetti dinner. That was lucky spaghetti dinner. <laughs> so imagine if you've made like a meal for your kids and they've they've hit a home run in the baseball game or the soccer match, right? And they then associate that ordinary kind of home-cooked meal with that joyous moment. It becomes like the lucky home-cooked meal. Um, yeah, I love that idea of 
of taking back the language of food and using it to our advantage. I love that. I love that. And、mm. one of the things that you did to kind of、uh, experiment with the power of this marketing is you got a marketing agency to actually work with fresh fruits and vegetables rather、Ooh. than this super processed food. What happened? What、yeah. were the results there? Yeah, that was a crazy thing. I still can't believe the、yeah. New York Times. Put that on the cover of their magazine. So, so I just had this idea. I mean, one of the problems, of course, in this whole kind of system is that all the marketing, all the advertising, is done for the junky processed food in the center of the store. Almost none of it gets 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 done for produce, vegetables, and fruits, with a couple of couple of exceptions. But but I just sort of, and so I sort of thought, well, would it even be possible to create a campaign? That would get people excited about a vegetable, and I I chose what I thought was like the hardest vegetable in、uh, the world because of associations with like bad cooking and whatever. But it's it was broccoli, and there was this there's this great scene where George Bush Senior was in the White House, and I have no idea how this came up, but he's standing in the lawn giving a press conference, and he goes, "I do not like broccoli," and I'm. President of the United States, and I will never eat broccoli again. It was so funny, right? Because I think his mother had like boiled it till it was brown. It, it could get really nasty. Yeah. You know, right, right. Anyway, so we chose broccoli, and it was like, you know, and this was a marketing firm that has done work for Coca-Cola and some of the other big food companies. But this was the hardest thing that they'd ever done because it's easy to do a marketing campaign for. For junk or for luxury items, right? That's like that's like a breeze. But this was really hard. And one of the very first things they decided was they weren't going to preach. The government's been preaching at us to eat more vegetables for decades, and nobody listens to them. <clears throat> so they decided to sort of have some fun, and they created these these campaigns where they picked a fight with another vegetable in the produce aisle. Oh, I blew my punchline. I'm sorry. They told me they were going to pick a fight. They were going to pick a fight with another item in the grocery store, and I thought, oh, great, they're going to go after potato chips or Doritos or what have you. And they go, no, 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 Michael, you're forgetting your own chapter in the book,、um, where you write about Coca-Cola and Pepsi. You know, you know, warring over you know each other with different commercials, and and it didn't really matter because whenever one of them would come out with a great Michael Jackson commercial or whatever, all boats In the soda aisle would rise, right? Sales would increase to everybody. Well, these guys go, "You're forgetting that." No, we're going to pick a fight with another vegetable, and so they chose what arguably is kind of the most, or was anyway, the most trendy vegetable in America at the time, which was kale, right? And so they came up with these, you know, gorgeous, cute ads. So I think one of them was like broccoli, you know. Ninety percent less pretentious than <laughs> kale. <laughs> Boy, I'm still I'm still hearing from the kale lovers out there, right? But it was all in great fun. And in fact, then so I did the story. That was it. But then some students at Yale, which is in a food desert, right? It's this fancy Ivy League college surrounded by people of, of very modest or or, or poor means. Who don't have access, easy access to good vegetables, they actually took the campaign and did it for real in some grocery stores and showed that just in a week they were able to double the sales of broccoli just through these 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 cool advertising campaigns. So that's a total. You know, it, it seems like it's a really great a really great approach to looking at ways that we can turn the tables on this industry to. To 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 turn us, help us turn ourselves back to eating real food. I think just being aware of what's gone into the food too makes you a little more skeptical when you're eating it, and perhaps a little more, <laughs> a little more, you know, noticing whether you actually do enjoy it or whether it's just like a, a distracted thing, you know. Oh, that's huge! I thought you were going to say something else because I mean, when I go to the grocery <laughs> store now, I look at these products and I just start laughing out loud because I know <laughs>、yeah. I know what goes into them. But yes, that mindfulness, right? That that thinking about paying attention to it, savoring it. Look, my mom used to say to us, you know, 
slow down at the dinner table, give your stomach time to catch up to your brain. This was like back in the 1960s, right? But even back then, my dad used to say this. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't just to keep you from choking on the roast beef, right? They knew even back then that it takes about 20 minutes for the stomach to catch up with the brain, right? And tell Mm. you you're full. And these, these modern food products that these companies make are designed in, to be packed with junky calories. So by the time you get to 20 minutes, forget about it. You have a whole day's worth of calories already in your stomach before they can, your stomach can possibly convince your brain to kind of slow down. So, so yeah, that slow savoring, whether you're eating a potato chip or a luscious you know, carrot that you just pulled out of your your garden. I think that works for both. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've been studying this for, you know, over 10 years now, you know, you've had access to the industry that not many people have had. If we only remember one thing from your years of research, from this conversation, what should we take away? That it's not our fault, that we shouldn't feel like we're slobs without any willpower, um, because 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 these products are engineered in a way to destroy that willpower in in us and that in order to regain control of our eating habits we need not just kind of the knowledge of how these products are designed and all the tricks that these companies use but we do kind of need a concerted plan of action um, that we can that we can, you know, try to execute to the best that we can. And life is going to intervene. You're going to fall off the wagon. Um, You're going to get distracted. You won't be able to execute that plan perfectly. But if you kind of keep coming back to it and and stay loose and easy about it. um, Yeah, that's my takeaway anyway. Super helpful. Thank you so much for sparing us the time, Michael. Fascinating stuff. Well, thank you for your work. Great talking to you. Really appreciate it. Michael Moss is the Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and New York Times bestselling author. His books are Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giant Hooked Us and Hooked, How We Became Addicted to Processed Foods. I'll put Michael's books in the show notes because I know you're going to want to read more about this because there is so much more to this. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I'm Ed Starr and I sincerely hope that's helpful.